I'm sure last week you thought I was finished with Genesis 1, but I'm going to go back to it one more time. Almost a record for one chapter of Scripture to look at it eight times, but it's a very unique chapter, and there are some important things yet that have not been stressed. So I'll read for you as we're studying Genesis now from verse 28 through 31. Verse 31 is really our focus this morning. And then I want to supplement with a portion of Psalm 104 as well. So first listen to the holy word of God, his infallible word, Genesis 1, beginning at 28. God blessed the man and woman and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and birds of the air and creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so." And God saw all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. In Psalm 104, hear this word, beginning at verse 24. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And there the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Without question, we live in a physical world which God has so designed as to intoxicate our eyes and our ears and our senses of touch and taste and smell. There are times when we're aware of that world and almost want to be able to linger over its many tantalizing effects, and we could list those things endlessly. The taste of something that you specially enjoy, like a fresh peach, a blazing purple sunset, the sight of a baby's fingers, the sense of falling in love for the first time in your life. There are many wonders in this world. I'm not sure about it, but I hope that Thornton Wilder's Pulitzer 
prize-winning play called Our Town is still being read in English classes around this land. It's a classic play, an American drama. It takes place in a small New Hampshire town in a period from about 1900 or so until just before World War I. And its theme is very narrow. It's all about life in this little town featuring the citizens of the town. And I would say its theme is about the sheer wonderment of everyday life. In a particularly poignant part of the play in the third act, a main character, Emily Webb, has been traced in the play from teenage years to young adulthood, and she had died at age 26 in childbirth. And at the end, she, in the playwright's imagination, is allowed to go back to visit her home. She's there as an unseen visitor, and she comes into the morning of her own 12th birthday and stands in the kitchen of her family home and watches her father and mother moving about in just an ordinary day. And Emily gives a wonderful speech. She's looking, she knows, at the last time, now as an outsider at her life. And she says, goodbye, world. Goodbye, mama and papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and mama's sunflowers. Goodbye to food and fresh coffee, to fresh iron dresses and hot baths. Oh, earth, she says, you are too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do human beings ever realize life as they live it every, every minute? And of course, the answer is we don't. Our world as God created it is full of intense beauty and joy and great experiences. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God saw what he had made and he called it good. As each day of creation came, he said, it is good. Six times, it is good. And then the capstone in the verse I'm focusing on today, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. You see, I want you to try to grasp that beneath the mundane lives we live, the painful outer layers of our life experience that we see through politics and economic crisis and violence by terrorists and thieves and despair and sickness and death and family problems. God has given us a world of tremendous enjoyment, and He intends for that enjoyment to simply be a foretaste of eternal blessing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a well-known first question that many of you could say and answer. It asks the question, what is man's chief end? What are we here for? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Some of you will know who one of our elders is in this congregation who caught me off guard years ago when I was new here by frequently asking me the question, Pastor, are you enjoying God today? 
He still asks the question, but I'm not caught as off guard anymore. Well, there's a question. Are you enjoying God? What does it mean to enjoy the wonders and the blessings that God has given us? I want to consider this subject of Genesis 131 and the goodness of all God has made and how we might savor the sweetness of his blessings intended for us. I couldn't pass this chapter. You know, I might have easily gone on to consider the Sabbath day, as I will hopefully next week, but I had to come back to these seven times in this chapter. It is good. 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 It was very good. And I know that this is the Hebrew language way of emphasizing something. Repetition is the way of emphasis. Now, they didn't have word processors that could put something in italics or bold or underline it or, or whatever. If God wanted something to be emphasized, he repeated it. And here it's repeated seven times, the number of perfection. And so as a first thought this morning, I want to put before you God's delight in his creation. If we would ask the question, did God like the world that he made? Was he happy with it? There shouldn't be any problem. A child could give the answer. Of course he was happy with it. In fact, it sounds like he was ecstatic about it. He approved of it. It gave him pleasure. He looked on the finely tuned relationships of living things and said to himself, that's exactly how it should be. Psalm 104.31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever, and may the Lord rejoice in all his works. Not us, the Lord. May he rejoice in all that he's made. Well, you remember the man Job, don't you? In the Old Testament, we talked about him in a number of recent Sunday evening services. Job, who was such a typical man in the way his sufferings overcame him, and he asked God all kinds of questions. Why, why, why? I don't think I deserve this. And he argued with his friends and they with him. And the book kind of went around and around, and Job kept looking more and more inward at himself. And suddenly comes chapter 38 of the book of Job, which is almost like an explosion, spiritually speaking. When the Lord revealed himself to Job, how I don't know exactly. You would think in his thoughts, the Lord, by his spirit, just grabbed hold of this man's mind and asked this question, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements of the earth or laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? I wonder if Job could see something as God challenged him that way, if he could sort of see a video in his mind of God creating Do you see the picture of what I just read? The morning stars singing together and the sons of God shouting for joy. The sons of God are the angels. Created beings. We don't know exactly when they were created. Genesis 1 doesn't tell us about that, but it's presumed and understood that they were there with God when he made the other created things. Other scripture hints at that. So here's a picture running through Job's mind of God creating and the heavenly beings surrounding him watching what's happening, watching the the galaxies be spun out and the mountains sculpted and the oceans taking shape 
And the suggestion is that it's as if stadiums, and we can picture that, you know, we watch stadiums full of people doing things all the time. Stadiums full of angels watched what God was doing and they couldn't help but shout and raise songs. Imagine that. Songs of praise and excited joy at what God was doing. And you see, that the passionate exuberance of that video in his mind given by God took Job out of himself. He was no longer inward focused. He was once again outward focused. And he was looking to God and he, in his stunned awe at that picture of things that angels shouted over, was able to begin worshiping God and humbling himself again before the Lord. You see, this statement, behold, it was very good, is grammatically speaking an absolute superlative. That is something that announces perfection. Now, if God were a mere man, he would be extremely boastful and arrogant if he said, oh, let's say God was a cabinet maker and he looked at his furniture and said, oh my, that, that end table is just beautiful. I can't think that anybody would ever create a better table than that. Oh, look at that chest of drawers I made. Is it not wonderful? Well, Maybe you are the world's best cabinet maker, but somebody's a shade better, and they're going to come in and say, you know, you could have made that leg a little bit differently. But you see, it's not boastful for God to marvel over what he's made. Because when he makes something, it is perfect. It cannot be made any better. And when he marvels at it, he's not boastfully or arrogantly praising himself. He's saying, That is perfectly suited to what I wanted it to be. That satisfies my requirement, and nothing else is needed to be done to it. John Calvin wrote about this passage, and he said, There is a symmetry, there is in the symmetry of God's works the highest perfection to which nothing can be added. And I didn't emphasize so much last week in verse 28 when we talked about it. I mentioned the mandate, be fruitful and and increase. But if you look at your text, even before the mandate was given, look, it says God blessed them. I should have probably emphasized that more, I realized after the fact. God, you see, brought this man and woman and introduced them to the joys and the perfection of what he made. And he said, look. I'm giving you a marvelous gift. Inhabit this perfect world that I've made. Inhabit its joys. Enter into its joys. And be the stewards of it. He blessed them. Paul agreed with this in 1 Timothy 6.17 in the New Testament when he said, God richly gives us all things to enjoy. God is not a stingy miser who says, there, go live in my world, but don't touch anything. You'll probably mess it up. No. He gives us his world, and he says, here it is. It's yours. I couldn't have made it any better. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. And God himself takes delight in his creation. Now, secondly, get a bigger picture. We go a little bit beyond Genesis 131 for a moment. And think about creation's him to the glory of God. A few weeks ago, we sang what I always know. I know what your favorite hymns are. Believe me, I, you know, I also know when the blue slips say, won't you please sing my favorite hymn, but, uh, which I'm not, evidently not choosing. But I know when I choose how great thou art, I've got a happy congregation. 
And you're all going to sing, Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hands have made. How great thou art. You're going to build it out because you love it. And I do too. Great hymn. It's the same hymn as Psalm 19 in a sense that says the heavens are telling the glories of God and the skies above are proclaiming his handiwork. It's the same theme as Psalm 148, which imagines in a sense that God is like a great choir director and he's summoning his choir, except here's what he says. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, you shining stars. Imagining having the sun and the moon and the shining stars as your choir. Praise him, praise the Lord in the deep places, oh, you monsters of the sea. This past Christmas, I received a, a DVD set of videos that I've been enjoying. It's a series of nature th- films and pictures that some of you may have seen on, uh, I'm not even sure what channel it's usually on, but it's called The Blue Planet. And it has different segments of different types of wonders of nature. And one is all about the deepest part of the sea. I'm really fascinated with this because it shows pictures of creatures that we could only recently see because of the, the submersible vehicles that we have now that can take us into places miles down where the pressure would destroy our bodies instantly if we didn't have that you know, uh, vehicle around us protecting the, the cameras and the men who are there. And they take these pictures, and I think to myself, these fish and, and eels and odd things that are there, they look like you, you asked first graders to say, draw us pictures of the most amazing fish and sea creatures you can think of. And, they, and their imaginations ran amok. Spiky things and weird shapes and weird colors, great big eyes. It, you know, it looks like a nightmare almost, some of these creatures as you look at them. You say, I didn't even know there were things like that. And just think, Miles beneath the ocean, those creatures have always been there as long as there's been an earth. And only recently have we been able to see these wonders and say these too are are part of the architecture of our God. He gets praise even from these odd creatures that look like monsters in the deep. Psalm 104 that I read says in verse 24, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. Did you know you could go and collect, if you've taken biology, you probably know this, but if you haven't taken biology recently, you probably don't remember. You could go with a, a, a glass, of drinking glass, and go to some lake. There aren't any too many lakes in Lancaster County, but go a field and find a lake and, and get yourself a quart of water out of the lake. And the biologist tells us that in about a quart or so of lake water, there are at least a million or more tiny, tiny microscopic plants called diatoms. Now, what in the world is a diatom? You say, I've never even heard of them. Well, believe me, if you were a fish in that lake, you'd be glad there were diatoms because the diatoms are plants that create oxygen, and the oxygen in the water is what keeps the fish alive. And they take tons of it, of course, so there have to be millions and millions and billions of diatoms in a small lake. And I've got some news for you. God made the diatoms. And in wisdom, he understood their function. 
He put this creation together in a marvelous way, and our planet is announcing the news to us day after day. It tells us God is glorious. God is glorious. God is glorious. And somehow we stumble along, eyes on the ground, maybe not even uplifted high enough to see that marvelous harvest moon that was in the sky here just a week ago, less than a week ago. Somehow we don't sense in the beauties of the land that God is glorious. Those geese can go honking overhead in their perfect V formation, and we don't hear them telling us God is glorious. He made us. He governs us. We are His. So much of the time we're locked into postures of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. We're consumed about the price of gas and groceries and the politicians' pontifications, and we spend our days like Job with our eyes fastened on the ground, mostly unhappy, nearly unconscious of our surroundings, while sky and field and forest are emblazoned with the praise of God. If you don't glimpse the Creator's greatness in this world, the fault is yours, not His. Jonathan Edwards was saying that when once he wrote, Surely, he said, we may not criticize any deficiency in a water fountain that is always overflowing before our eyes. And he was talking about the way in which the glory of God overflows in the creation. He was talking about the fact that the creation is a lavish demonstration of the incomparable exuberance and power and greatness of God. What a God he must be. Edwards again thought about these things and how the creation reflected the excellency of God himself and in his character. Here's a longer quote of something he said in a sermon. I quote him, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can really be satisfied. To go to heaven and there to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than our most pleasant accommodations here. And Edwards went on to say, all these created things are but shadows. God is their substance. These are but scattered beams of which God is the sun. These are only streams. God is the ocean. Do we understand the creation's hymn to the grandeur of God? But now in the third place, I would speak about how you can savor God's sweetest blessings because we all know the sad thing is much of the time we're just not seeing them. There was a 17th century poet you may never have heard of named Thomas Traherne. Traherne once said this, you never enjoy the world aright till the sea itself flows in your veins. Till you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars and perceive yourself the sole heir of the world. Until you can sing and rejoice and delight in God the way misers do in their gold and kings in their scepters. You never yet enjoy the world. Why don't we enjoy the world? 
the way a king or a miser, as the poet said, enjoys his gold. Why are we busy most of the time practically making mud pies in the middle of a slum instead of running through the Yellowstone Park beauty of this world of ours with our heads thrown back and a shout on our lips of praise to our God? Well, there's an answer. And the answer is our sin and all of its effects on ourselves and on the world itself and the politics and the economics and the whole world system that hangs on human behavior. Sin clouds our vision, it blocks our hearing, it distorts our understanding. 1 Corinthians 13 says, what we see of this world is but a poor reflection, as in a clouded mirror. We barely catch a glimpse of what's really happening. And our own sin too often preoccupies us and condemns us so that it's all we can see and its effects are all we can think about. And yet God has designed to bless his people. He wants to bless us. Just a few samples of of things he said about this. Isaiah 65, 18. The Lord said, I create Jerusalem, and there Jerusalem is a term for all the people of God, not just the literal city. I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy to me. Jeremiah 32, 41. The Lord said, I will rejoice in doing my people good. I will plant them in the land with faithfulness, with all my heart and soul. And I love a passage from the most obscure prophet. I think Zephaniah qualifies as the most obscure prophet. But there's a passage in Zephaniah that that shines out like a beam of sunlight. Zephaniah 3.17, which describes God and, and his attitude towards his people. It says this, He will take delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The only place in the Bible that says God sings, he will rejoice over you with singing. God wants to sing and celebrate over you. And you might say, well, I can't imagine God being that delighted with me. There's nothing about me that would make him want to sing over me. Well, if you say that, then you need to understand the good news of the Christian gospel that says the God who made you, the God who delights in you, the God who designed you for blessing and joy is the same God who has watched you rebel against him, who has watched this world society decay and go wrong and end up in violence and all kinds of bad choices and unbelief and disobedience. But he was also the God who sent his son, Jesus, to enter that same world and to pursue us in our sins and to go to a cross where our sins were heaped up on him and did their worst upon him. And by the accomplishment of that cross, God reconciled us to the joy that he created us to know. Jesus was bruised and killed to resolve the conflict of our sin and God's joy. The most tragic moment in human history meant a recovery for believers of the Creator's delight in them. And God now takes the same delight in blessing every believer in Christ as that passionate, exuberant satisfaction that we read about that He has in His original creation. Have you ever considered that? 
You know, we seem to think about salvation as something we go seeking, and, and we say, please, please, God, won't you do something for us? That's all wrong. God came after us. And he didn't just come tiptoeing after us. He came running after us like that father running down the road to greet his prodigal the moment he caught sight of him. He loves us, and he loves to show mercy to us. Exodus 34 has that picture of the Lord, the Lord, a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One man wrote about God using the imagery of firearms or guns. If you're a gun person, you'll identify. He said, God's anger breaks forth only after you cause him and provoke him to take off a stiff safety lock. But his grace and mercy are always set on a hair trigger. I think of our God in his mercy as like Niagara Falls, something I've seen numerous times in my life. And there's one thought I always have when I go to Niagara Falls. Been there, I don't know, 15 times probably. I used to live not so far from it. Every time I go, it might have been three or four years since I was last there, or ten years, I look at it, I gaze at it, at the huge volume of water, and I say, has that water been going over there like that every day since I was last here? I can't believe it. And is that much water going to keep on going over that cataract every hour, even when I'm not here observing it? And ten years from now and a hundred years from now, if the world is unchanged, is it still going to be going over in that volume? And you know the answer, of course. And then I think of the volume of the mercy of God that he needs to reconcile the sins of men and women who trust in his son. And I think, Niagara Falls, you are a trickle. Just a trickle compared to that volume of the mercy of our God. The Scripture tells us that the main reward of the kingdom of God that we will enjoy in heaven is to see His presence with inexpressible delight. And to know Him as Savior and Lord today is to have a foretaste of that, to glimpse it, to taste it on the end of our tongues and to comprehend that because of what Christ did, God is free to rejoice in us again. His wrath is released. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of what? Returning to his Father and being united with us in eternal glory. Because of the cross, the Father we had so deeply offended can look at me and look at you, and what does he see? We believe the gospel of justification by grace through faith tells us that when he looks at me, wonder of all wonders, he sees Jesus. And how can the Father look at Jesus, his righteous Son, and fail to be delighted? And so he can say to those who do believe in his Son, as the Scripture says it, enter into the joy of your salvation. Do you understand how big your salvation is? It literally takes you out of the devastation of Genesis 3 and the fall of man and puts you back in Genesis 
131. So that when the Father looks at a Christian man or woman, He once more says, There is a new creation of mine. And that is very good. Amen. Father, in your new creation, you're doing what you did the first time. Thank you. How wonderful is the completeness of your Scripture. How amazing that it took Jesus, your Son, to put us back where you first blessed Adam and Eve to be, in the midst of your delight, in the lap of your splendor. But we thank you that you did it and that you make the invitation clear to all now who will respond and trust and say, yes, Jesus did that for me, that we will live in that blessing. Father, our joy should know no bounds. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.